Um, so, Father, right now we come to you, and first of all, we just say thank you for your love. Thank you for your commitment to this world that's broken, that has been in rebellion against you, that has brought and unleashed the Pandora's box of brokenness and sin and death and ruin upon this world. And yet, God, you've not given up on this world. And so we humbly now want to turn our hearts to you and just come to you in a posture as a learner, as a, as a worshiper, as a disciple, as one that just says we want to allow you, give you full reign to transform and reshape our lives. Uh, because you're trustworthy. Just as we celebrated the communion, we are reminded of how much love and devotion you have for us in this world, that you gave yourself for us. And because of your love for us, we can give ourselves in confidence and trust to you. So have your way here this morning in this time right now. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So quick um, backstory. I'm just going to just jump right in. I've got to tell you real quickly, um, some of the content of what I'm going to be teaching on today may be semi-triggering, so just a little bit of a disclaimer up front. Um, I, my hope would be that you stay all the way to the very, very end. It's that essential of a message that Jesus has to say. So, but Disclaimers aside, I want to jump in a little bit to the backstory, and you can see the little bullet points up there. Some of this is what uh, Gunther had shared and taught last week, but I'm just going to go through it real quickly. So the larger context in John chapter 8 is Jesus has been making these claims, but one of the claims that he makes in around verse 12 is this bold claim of like, I am the light of the world, um, and he goes on to say, unless you come to me, um, you will continue on your journey in your path of darkness, and Jesus' claim is pretty profound. He's basically saying, I alone will be the one that will lift human beings out of their darkness. Just pause and think about the audacity of that claim. But that's Jesus' claim. We're left as disciples to either you know, rebel against it, reject it, dismiss it, think Jesus is nuts, or just cast ourselves at his feet and worship. And I would, I would recommend the latter, but I also realize Maybe getting to the ladder sometimes requires us to work through some of our, our objections and the things that we've gone through by way of trauma or past or hurts or hardships or disinformation and whatnot. But we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, secondly, we see that the religious leaders obviously push back and they challenge this claim that Jesus is making. And they're, in essence, calling him a liar, saying your testimony is false. Jesus counters by saying, hey, my father who sent me uh, bears witness to me. Because Jewish law had this whole idea, like you have out of the mouth of one, uh, two or three witnesses. Um, you can't just like go up and say they did wrong and therefore, you know, take out the stones and, and kill or execute. Uh, it, there, was a, there was a judicial system that was put in place in order to protect human life. Uh, you get the idea or the hint that human life actually matters to God in all of its forms and facets. But what we see is that they're calling uh, Jesus uh, on his claim, and Jesus says, my father bears witness or testimony of me. Uh, again, which is another pretty bold claim that he's calling Yahweh God, this ancient historic God of the people of Israel, to testimony. He's basically saying that, that Yahweh God bears testimony of me. Um, that's a pretty bold claim, but Jesus even ends on this like little note. He says, you guys think you know Yahweh, but you actually don't know Yahweh. If you knew Yahweh, then you would worship me. If you knew God, this is one of those like little segments where you, it's, it's, it requires us to sit back and just catch our breath and ask the question, could this, could this be me? 
could I know certain facts or data points about God, but not really know the Father? Is it possible that I might have certain information about God, but not really even be known by God? It's kind of like what Jesus said at some point. There's going to be people that are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we speak prophetic words in your name? Weren't we charismatics in your name? Weren't we prophets in your name? Weren't we doing amazing charismatic things in your name? And the Father's going to say, I never knew you. You claim to have known me, but you have you really didn't know me. And then as we move on into the actual text, I'm going to just, I'm going to read through it and then I will, I'll make some comments and I'll circle back with some summary thoughts and we will call it uh, a day. So with that, let's jump in at verse 20, which is where we begin. We'll make our way down to about verse 31 or something like that, time allowing. So we see in the conclusion or the uh, consideration of this, it says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one had arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Um, that whole little phrase, his hour has not yet come, it's kind of fascinating to me. Is I, I remember listening to my pastor, his name was uh, Chuck Smith. Uh, he passed away several years ago. Uh, I remember one time he was, he was teaching a sermon, and he basically said something to the effect, it's an amazing thing to consider, like, like God has us on this planet doing his things for a, a set time, and until that set time is like, done or determined or over we're invincible <laughs> like like nothing's gonna thwart or hinder like it until that time now the question is we don't know when the time is we don't know you know we god he doesn't give us those clues he doesn't show us he doesn't share those secrets with us but um and he was talking about like when he would travel he'd go on planes and he would have this Sometimes these moments of thinking, is the plane going to go down? Am I going to die? Am I not going to see my wife and my kids? And I actually used to have the same like anxieties when I would, like especially when my kids were young. I would be like, I'd hop on a plane. I would be overwhelmed with anxiety. Man, if I die, Sherry's left to raise the kids on her own. I have no idea what's going to happen with the church and my life. And I just remember we'd have these moments. And I remind myself, like, oh, I'm invincible until God like pulls the plug on me. And then when that happens, like whatever, it's all, you know, I'll die and I'll go be with Jesus and I'll be all good anyhow. But Jesus obviously had a set determined moment in his life when the arrest was going to happen, everything was going to go down and he was going to then enter into the state of facing the cross. But until that happened, um, he was immune. He was protected until that day happened. Uh, in verse 21, it goes on to say, and then he said to them, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Now, I want you to pay attention to this little phrase, die in your sin. He's going to say it three times. Um, so whenever Jesus says one thing, how much attention should we give to it? Like scale of one to ten, ten being like uppermost, high level, yes, for sure, pay attention to it. One being like zero, and that's all good. I can, I can determine whether or not I want to take care of it, pay attention to it or not. How, three, if he says it three times, how, how level, what level? Right, 10, I would say 30, but yes, 10. We're, we're, all, we're all on the same page. But the big idea is that Jesus is going to say this same phrase three times. He goes on to say, where I am going, you cannot come, verse 22. He says, so the Jews then said to him, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, uh, you cannot come. So they're obviously confused. They're trying to make sense, try to, you know, Jesus, just so you know that sometimes when you read Jesus or you hear about Jesus, he says things sometimes that are, that are, that are, they're, they're paradoxical. They're cryptic sometimes. And that's just the way Jesus works sometimes. I mean, he's speaking at a whole other level that sometimes not everyone's able to fully comprehend or understand. 
um, how much of this is strategic, you know, Jesus, like, knowing this, or how much of this is there's just disconnect between a uh, natural mind that's trying to make sense of things through a particular grid that they've been given, and then Jesus, who's entirely from a different world. Like, literally, he's going to go on and tell us that. But nonetheless, there's confusion. They hear Jesus. Uh, he doesn't make sense. They're trying to make sense of it, and they're coming to these conclusions of, like, maybe he's going to commit suicide. And then it goes on to say, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, verse 23. Then he said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, uh, you will die in your sins. So there you go, three times, Jesus makes this statement about uh, dying in your sins in contrast to uh or in connection really to the fact of them trusting him for who he truly is uh, in contrast to them living where they're at right now in the state of denial of who jesus is which ultimately is a denial of yahweh god so this again the whole irony of this is like massive don't don't miss this who, who are these people they're the pharisees these are the religious leaders or to put it into a modern day context uh if you were to be part of the world of, of islam these would be the imams these would be the people that run the mosque system or the, uh, in a Jewish context. These would be the rabbis or the Catholic system. It would be like, this is the priests. This is the cardinals. These are the people that basically make their living off of this whole system. But his whole point is like, you guys don't, you guys don't know me. And you therefore don't know God as a testimony of this. So let's ask a couple quick questions of the text. What do we learn about Jesus from what he says? I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple of like bullet points. Any any quick assessments or observations that, that you can like shout back like you notice here's what jesus says about himself any anybody want to try something that what's that not of this world. he's not of this world good one anyone else so what world is he from okay so here's an interesting thing the word world literally is the word cosmos not of this order so we often have to think of not of this world meaning like planet earth which you know, I, I think that's obviously the case but what he seems to be indicating is that this this planet that we inhabit, this terra firma that's beneath our feet, um, you can think of it this way. There's there's hardware and there's software. The hardware, you know, the, the planet, the things that we touch, the things that you're sitting on called chairs, um, the, the whole thing is operated by a system. We could call that software. Uh, you can even go a little bit further with this analogy and realize the software that is on this planet operating upon the substrate of planet Earth, terra firma, within the world of material that we inhabit, all of that has been uh, infected by a virus. In other words, it, it's not operating the way that God had originally intended for it to operate. It's, it's been infected by a virus. How do you get rid of the virus? Well, I, I would suggest that all of psychology and sociology, and I would even add maybe some degree of history, all of these are attempts to somehow... Uh, undo the virus of the world, which causes the pain and the anguish, and we find ourselves oftentimes suffering under. But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to deal with the virus, we can call that sin, in a, in a unique way, which you'll get to in just a moment. But what, what he's suggesting very clearly is that I'm not of this world, this system of this world. I don't operate according to the system of this world. You operate according to the system of this world because you're wired to operate according to the system of this world. If you like the analogy of the matrix, you operate according to the matrix because you are part of the matrix. You think like the matrix. 
which really is not your thinking at, at, at all. It's the thinking of a programmer who's behind the scenes, who's creating the matrix, who's feeding you this particular line of thinking. And that's how you think, and that's how you live, and that's how you act, because you've been programmed by way of the virus to act and think and live and uh, exist in this particular way. And Jesus' the whole point, I'm out of this matrix. I'm out of an entirely different system. And his whole point is that unless you break out of this matrix or system, this cosmos, you will die in your sins. It's a pretty heavy deal. Like I said, this could be a little bit triggering for some, and it will get more triggering. All right? So here's a couple of things I just think in terms of bullet points that Jesus is suggesting about himself. Number one, uh, he is going away. So he is going away. He tells us that verse 21. Verse 23, he tells us he's from above. Uh, verse 23 also tells us he's not of this world, as we just heard. And then he goes on to say um, earlier that we just kind of alluded to that he's actually the light of the world, which is another way of saying he is the Messiah. Or in other words, if you want to think about another context, Jesus literally, by way of saying, I am the light of the world, I, I think is another way of saying, I am moral goodness embodied. Now, which of us in this room can claim the high ground of moral goodness? I would suggest to you that what we're seeing today in politics, especially especially in politics, is the battle of who's got the moral high ground. And it's one battle against another. And that's the core of it. So it's, it's a battle of saying, I'm standing on moral high ground. I'm over you, above you. I can identify your failures, your sinfulness, your shortcomings, your uh, inabilities, uh, your tone deafness. And I'm, therefore, I'm judging you. I'm critiquing you. And, and if I had the opportunity, I would counsel you and might even crucify you. But because that's against the law, killing, I don't want blood on my hands, and I don't want to go to jail forever. But the other side is also saying the exact same thing. And it's really an issue of, like, who has the moral high ground? And so when Jesus makes this claim, I am the light of the world, he literally is claiming, I have the moral high ground over all. And unless you adopt my thinking, my way of life, my understanding of this world, this matrix, by not only entering into the world that I'm offering, but also escaping the world that is under the spell of this tainted, broken virus that has infected the software of this present cosmos, you will die in your sins. That's the end result. It's the end game. That's where everything is headed. That is the telos. So towards heading towards or broke, uh, going towards in that context. So as we go on in verse 25, Jesus goes on to say, then he said to him, who are you? They said to Jesus, Jesus then said to them, just as just what I had been telling you from the very beginning, I have much to say to you about much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world, this cosmos, what I have heard from him. Uh, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So, again, Jesus is identifying himself as, as a spokesman for God. I've come to speak for God, which is which is not too uh, dissimilar of identifying as a prophet. So very clearly, we know, obviously, because we know the end of the story, that Jesus is more than a prophet, but he's not less than a prophet. So he's speaking on a prophetic level on behalf of God. And this is where they're obviously uh, frustrated and caught off guard by that because they're just like, you know, who gave you the authority to speak on behalf of God? And here's where Jesus, his whole point is like, like, I don't need your authority. I don't need your commendation. I'm certainly not here for your affirmations. I speak on behalf of God. God has given me a message to deposit. I'm bringing this to you. You can receive it by humble worship or you can reject it. And this is what Jesus' whole point. But if you reject it, if you reject my message in my life, you will 
continue down this path that will lead you to a cessation of life in a life of sin. You will die in your sins, in other words. So as you go on, uh, Jesus is identifying the fact that you are, you're deaf, you're unable to hear. And again, I, I just think this is a worthy caution for us because is it possible for us to become so familiar with Jesus or so familiar with what we think is Jesus that we actually are not stunned by him? We're not moved by him. We're not in awe of him. Other things capture our attention. Again, we live in a world where we're all very, very easily distracted. I think part of the, the matrix in which we live in is just distraction, to distract us from, from goodness. If Jesus is truly is the highest level of moral goodness, it's very easy for us to forget who he is and get lost in this world. And therefore, we become deaf or tone deaf or dull of hearing. Uh, going on down to verse 28, and I'll finish up with this little segment, and then we'll finish up with some summary. And then Jesus said to them, when you have seen... Uh, when, when you have lifted up the Son of Man or seen him being lifted up, then you will know that I am he and that I'm doing nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many had believed in him. So John leaves this little side note that, hey, by the way, as Jesus speaks, not everybody believes in Jesus, but some do. Some do. And I think, again, it's just another like indicator of the fact that even though uh, we are all and have some degree of accessibility to the message of Jesus, not everyone's going to receive it. There are some that are going to be like, yes, Jesus, Team Jesus, I'm on your team. Others will be like, I don't know. I, I will hesitantly receive Jesus if Jesus complies with my world and my interpretation of how the world could be or should be. And, and again, this is, this is where I would, I would gently push back and just say, be careful of that framework. Because really, at the end of the day, what you're setting yourself up as the final arbitrator, the final judge. You're the one that determines, is Jesus right? Is Jesus trustworthy? Should I believe in him? Should I disregard him? Can I believe in him? Or should I just dismiss everything he's saying? You are setting yourself up as, as the judge. You are actually taking a place of, of being God. And if, if Jesus resonates with you, then you'll accept him. If not, we feel some moral obligation to dismiss him. That's a scary place to be. Because again, if Jesus really truly is who he claims to be, then the whole statement of the, the, the trice spoken statement of like, you will die in your sins, has, has some degree of potency that should cause us to at least step back and ask, oh man, am I listening? Am I responding? Am I loving this God who is good? And again, don't hear this statement as a, as, a, as a dark threat from Jesus where he's angrily pointing the finger at you. I think this is honestly part of uh, the misinformation campaign that we oftentimes see, that Jesus is standing there as this like angry, just frustrated uh, human God, you know, half human or partial human, partial God, you know, the, the reality that God, man, like pointing finger in condemnation of us. I think honestly what Jesus is just clearly saying is that, look, the human condition is, is sick under the disease of this virus we call sin. And unless that virus is eradicated and undone and removed, then and the only one that holds the key, the antivirus to that, is me. And I will die on the cross under the weight of that virus. And it will do to me what it's doing to you every single day, which is tearing you limb from limb, emotionally, mentally, physically. And, and I will let it do to me. But that's okay, because I got, I got a trick up my sleeve. I will die, I will go into the grave, and I will rise the third day. And all who follow me 
will be given that same access to life and overcome the antivirus, the antivenom. It will put to death the sin, the virus that has been unleashed upon your heart, within your life, and it will give you freedom. And you will not die in your sin. But it's deeply linked to Jesus. We cannot separate it from that. All right, I want to finish with a few final summary thoughts. Uh, number one, I think it's pretty clear that truth exposes the false. The truth exposes the false. Again, I think part of the problem that we have ahead of us right now as a, as a human race, especially as a human race living within a technological age, is the amount, the massive amount of information and disinformation. We, we know this. This has obviously become very, very clear, especially over the past five years, more so than ever. I was um, listening to a YouTube clip that been kind of making its rounds. Uh, Denzel Washington, um, obviously you guys know who he is, fantastic, you know, actor and blah, blah, blah. Um, this is a horrible photo of him, by the way. It's just like, I, I just, I didn't have a whole lot of time. I just grabbed this. So sorry, sorry, Denzel. I have way more respect for you than that this like little clip shows of you. But anyways, um, he, he made this statement recently, sorry, um, that I just found really fascinating. Just I'll, let me read it to you and then you can just digest it and think about it. Um, and this, he's actually challenging the mainstream media. And he's, he's holding them accountable, which, you know, good. Because the mainstream media is, is in my opinion, the, the priests of information. The, the way that the actual priests are supposed to be sharing scripture, or pastors are supposed to, or ministers are supposed to be sharing the scripture. Like, the mainstream media is kind of like, like abusing in a lot of ways. And I'm not going to go down a rant, but you get the idea. He says this, if you don't read the news, you're uninformed. If you do read the news, you're misinformed. One of the effects of... So much information is the need to be first, not even be true, say it and sell it. His whole point was like, like you guys are on this race to get the message out first and foremost. It doesn't matter if it's true. It just matters if it's first, because if it's first, then the ratings go up. And when, when ratings go up, you can you, you, your value goes up. You're able to sell more commercials. You're able to be more valuable. The whole idea of power comes along with money and so on and so forth. We are all infected by this virus, by the way. He goes on to say, your responsibility is to tell the truth and not be first. Everything you practice, will uh, you will get good at. And he uses a particular word on there that, that emoji is intended to uh, put in your mind. So there you go. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that, that this, I think this is, this is accurate. This is the world in which we live in. It's filled with information. But truth comes and exposes that which is false. This is why Jesus, why we need Jesus. If he is indeed the light of the world. We need him daily, regularly, consistently, and his word to, re, to expose those truths that are forced upon us, that we are feeding off of, that we are living off of, that we are oftentimes saying to ourselves or speaking to ourselves by way of self-talk to bring about affirmation of what we feel in our deepest sense of ourselves, of our lives, of our hearts, of what's common within culture. The, the, the word of Jesus comes and exposes the brokenness of those things that we find ourselves in our world. The second thing we see that truth ignored leads to death. Again, this is kind of a reflection point upon the three times that Jesus says, um, unless you turn to me, you will die in your sin. I think what Jesus is doing is he's kind of playing this role of a prophet, specifically like the prophet Ezekiel. I don't know if I have the slide up there. There we go. I do actually have it up there. And it's a reflection of the prophet where the prophet actually makes a statement. He says, if you warn the wicked to turn away from their sin, they will, and if they do not turn, he says the the wicked person will die in their sin, but you will have delivered your soul. Um, again, it's this phrase, die in your sin. It's, it, Jesus didn't come up with it or 
created. He's literally just, he's, he's speaking forth what the prophet Ezekiel said. Again, I, I love this because Jesus is like tethering himself to this ancient historic reality that goes, that long predates Jesus. He's like, this, this is my, my tribe. These are my people. This is what I belong to. The, the race of human beings that have drifted from the one God. But I'm calling them back. And this is the beauty of Jesus. He keeps calling back. He will never, and he always, he just keeps speaking forth, not giving up on you, to call you, invite you to come back, to repent, to turn from our ways. But I think, again, beginning to identify the misinformation campaigns that we live within this world and we are constantly navigating, working through. So I was thinking through this on just some practical notes, like there's at least two major misinformation campaigns that I'm, I'm, I'm constantly watching or being aware. Of. And if, if you're watching the news, you're also being aware of these things. And I'll kind of put them into two larger categories. And I'll go through these very quickly. Number one is the misinformation campaign about purpose, identity, or humanness. And the second one is the misinformation campaign about life or the Imago Dei or the image of God in human beings. Uh, number one, I think the idea that the misinformation campaign about purpose, identity, and humanness, the, the, the big picture is that God says, I've created all human beings in my image as male and female. There's maleness, there's femaleness. That's the binary. But we live in an Asian world in which today we've actually found that we can craft things and change things or provide certain drugs or provide certain levels of counseling or affirmative types of care. And the hope is that that will then get us from a place of chaos or pain or suicidal ideation to a place where we now have peace and rest and hope. But the fact of the matter is that we, we, there, the, the stories, the, the data does not prove that it actually reduces any of that or actually connects people to a state of wholeness and hope. And the fact is, I think with regard to this misinformation, this purpose that we are invited by God to, to imbibe or to hold on to of maleness and femaleness, that even though that we live in this world today that basically says God does not give identity or purpose or reason for your being human, because again, we live in a world that is the scientific world, and for the most part, we've believed this other form of misinformation that because we are just the byproducts of natural selection, we are the ones that ultimately, by way of a philosophical understanding, we are the ones that are responsible for developing and creating our own purpose. That's the whole big idea behind this, is that if purpose and identity and and, and a uh, reason to live is completely incumbent upon you and me, then, then yes, the world is open to every single possibility that you can ever imagine. But if the world is actually created by God and God loves this world that has been infected by this virus called sin and rebellion, then this God actually has something to say or to contest with regards to that specific misinformation campaign that's out there. And if that's the case, we are on contested ground, especially here in the state of California. And I think that within this battle that we find ourselves in the midst of, are trying to figure out what place do we find ourselves? Where do we give ourselves? Where do we give our attention, our heart, our time? And what I think the message of the gospel is to receive God's message of what purpose and identity in humanness is all about. That even though we have found ways miraculously or scientifically to break through certain biological altering of our hormones or body modification, we would call this in some context 
gender-affirming care, the fact of the matter is, is it really affirming? Does it really oftentimes lead to the life of hope and healing and wholeness and lack of confusion or the opposite side of confusion that, that is oftentimes being promised with regard to that? Again, how oftentimes are stories actually being given to people that are in a state of detransitioning? In other words, people that have actually gone through, I remember listening to recently, uh, reading a book actually, and also listening to a podcast from a particular person that had gone through an actual transition, had taken the hormone blockers, had actually had the sex modification, gender modification. And as a state of moving from that particular place where they were into a detransition state, they were sharing about how they were given misinformation and it did not help them. It only led to greater levels of chaos and anxiety and stress and worry and suicidal ideation that they had never hoped or never thought that it would actually take place. And the point that I would make is this, is that many Christians, I want to be really careful here as well, because I realize I'm treading on some fragile ice here. For many Christians, I want to push back. Many Christians see this as nothing more than a political or a cultural battlefield and they take up weapons to fight as if certain people out there are their enemy and honestly guys please listen to me carefully if that's you please stop please stop these are people made in god's image so many people that have been broken and hurt and wounded and isolated and shoved off to the margins and they've been imbibing a cultural narrative that is misinformation at best at worst it's some form of a means of making money by way of the pharmaceutical and the other types of uh, industries that are cartels that are out there profiteering off of other people's insecurities and confusion. These are people Jesus loves that are in a state of confusion. So, yes, I'm not in any way saying don't pass laws, but what I am suggesting that just because a law is passed doesn't mean that you change hearts. You might change culture, you might change society, you might change, you might feel good about yourself, pat yourself on the back, but you will not change hearts. And I'm not saying don't pass laws that are in necessary need to protect young children, especially young children. Especially young children. But the hope and prayer is that we are not in a political battlefield. We are not in a cultural war. We are in a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle involves misinformation, disinformation that comes from the evil one to throw into chaos and confusion the vision that God has for this world to flourish. It's part of the virus that's within our culture today. The second thing I think is the life in the Imago Dei big idea or misinformation campaign. Oftentimes this idea that God creates all human beings in his likeness and in his image. So whether it's an unborn child or a non-producing adult that is unable to care for themselves or actually be a productive member of society and culture at large, the idea of leaning towards suicide or death or aided to death or even in this particular context of abortion. The fact of the matter is these are people made in God's image. Yes, there's political elements that oftentimes Christians get stuck in. And yes, there are cultural elements that oftentimes Christians get stuck in as well. But really at the end of the day, this is an issue of God loving human beings. God having a plan and a purpose for human flourishing that has been subjugated under the weight of sin and brokenness. And so what we see here is that even though there are 2,500 a day unborn children put to death, Last statistic I heard. Really, at the end of the day, I wonder if if the idea of sex or responsible relationships and life were viewed differently. In other words, how 
men are to interact with women and how women are to interact with men and what marriage looks like and what type of place and role that takes in society and how we think about our sexual identity and our sexuality and our sexual urges and longings and desires rather than just simply grabbing everything because it's there to take. I always say this, like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. All right, Oppenheimer, right? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, we can smash an atom. That's awesome. But should we? Should we be dropping bombs on people to kill, cause mass murder? Like, should should that be happening? Um, look, just because we can doesn't mean we should. This is where the, the hope of the light of the world comes in. It says, no, I am the moral agent that gives life. Follow me and you will live. Disregard me and you will find yourself walking on a path towards dying in your sin. It's a heavy thing. And look, at the end of the day, I realize this is not a popular message by any stretch. And as human beings, and especially as Americans, we would prefer to be affirmed over hearing truth. Over humbly orienting our lives around what Jesus has to say. As disruptive, and as painful, and as costly, it will be costly to follow Jesus. But that cost is spread over all human beings. All human beings are called upon to sacrifice, to give up, to let go, to say no. In some cases, Jesus even says to sever your hand because if it's causing you to stumble, it'd be better for you to cut your hand off. Again, he's speaking hyperbole. Don't do this. Uh, than to enter into eternal life. It's better for you to enter into eternal life maimed, having lost something very significant to you so that you can then experience the life and flourishing that God the Father has for you forever. It's a way of saying sacrifice momentary pleasure for eternal joy. The fact of the matter is, is that there are going to be some things that aren't all of our lives that simply don't line up with God or his will or his word. And that puts us really, especially if we're holding on to those things, it puts us in direct conflict with God. And I want to suggest to you, no one has ever won a direct conflict with God. And I'm not, I'm not saying that as a threat or to terrify you or fear you. I'm letting hope, hope that the words themselves would at least put some degree of like, oh, that's right. God is God and I'm simply a human. I breathe because of the will of God. He put that breath in my mouth. He gave me lungs that are able to receive and process oxygen and then push that out in the form of other gases that are not good for my body. All of this is because of the will of God. He's good. And how do I line myself up around him? And I say this, honestly, guys, because I love you. I realize this is not popular, but there are things that we are trying to hold on to. I tell you this, that if we reject him, his ways, or we play, you know, reconstruct the Bible in ways that fit our cultural sensibilities, at some point that will continue to put us in face-to-face conflict with this God. In Jesus' statement, has to come back to us at some point and just have some degree of resonance. My hope would be that would lead us ultimately to the last thing I'm done. Is that thirdly, we see that Jesus really is the embodiment of all of this truth. To what degree? He tells us himself that you will at some point know who I am and what I've come to do when the Son of Man is lifted up. This is very clearly, all scholars agree, a reference to him dying on the cross. His whole point seems to be that you will see the degree to which I have come to not 
point the finger, to not bring a sense of guilt, shame, and regret upon your lives, to not bear more burdens upon you that you already carry. I've come to take those burdens from you. I've come to give you life. I've come to be the one to restore you to wholeness and the goodness that comes from me. How? The cross. And that brings us back to the, the, this good news of this God that loves us and is for us and invites us to trust him. So in closing, I'm going to have Mike come on up. And I just want us to, right now, how about we all stand to just reflect upon who God is, just from the text that we just read. Maybe even ask the bigger question, as I referenced to throughout, are there things in our lives that maybe we've grown too comfortable with in our awareness or understanding who Jesus is to the point where it's lost its potency, it's lost the sense of like, ah, man, he is God, and I'm not, and I'm playing games with this God that one day I will I will meet. Again, like I said, it's not to terrify you or bring terror to your soul. It's to bring an awareness of the fact that this God does speak truth sometimes. And if Jesus says something once, should we listen to you? If he says that three times, man, we have to at some point just step back and just say, Lord, is there any way this shoe fits in my life that I can identify and recognize and reorient my life and my discipleship back to trusting you for who you are. So I'm going to pray. This guys will lead us in a song. And my invitation to you is to just reflect upon who God is and what he's inviting you into right now. Jesus, thank you. And we just respond in love and worship to you.